0: Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio, or if you're listening on, catch up to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, the Tory leadership contest, which will ultimately determine our next prime minister. In the first round of voting, the former Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, came top of the poll. Nadim Zahawi and Jeremy Hunt dropped out. We'll be hearing from Byline Times editor, Hadeep Matharu, and our political editor, Adam Bienkoff. First, though, just a reminder that Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast are funded by subscribers too. The Byline Times, our brilliant monthly newspaper, as I say, edited by Hardeep. We can report without fear or favour and hold the rich and the powerful to account. And we can do that because our funding doesn't come from billionaires who may be non-domiciled, our funding comes from ordinary readers taking out subscriptions to the Byline Times. So please subscribe if you can. You'll get subscription details at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. And if you have already subscribed, thank you. So Adam Huddy, welcome both. And uh, Adam, firstly, any, any surprises in this first round of voting?
1: Yeah, so in terms of the the order of where the candidates came, no huge surprises. We knew that Jeremy Hunt had massively underperformed compared to how he did in 2019 and was likely to go out. We knew that Sahari was also in danger, um, and he went out of 825 twenty-five votes because there's a threshold of thirty votes in this in this first round. Um, and in, term, in terms of the top of the the lineup, we knew that Sunak was likely to come top, and we knew that Morden was mm-hmm. likely to come second, and Trust likely to come third. I think where where there was possibly some surprise is that there was an expectation among Sunak's um, supporters this morning, at least, that they thought he might do uh, quite a bit better than he actually did. They they thought he might actually get over 100 votes. He was only on 88. Um, I think what might have changed that today is there was um, some polling out today from YouGov in which Sunak massively underperformed, um, in fact, in a a sort of head-to-head against all of the other candidates that suggested that he would... Lose among Conservative Party members. Um, So that seems to have helped Penny Mordant. So, you know, it's still a very fluid race. The top three are very close together. But I think tomorrow is going to be potentially um, more interesting. We're going to start to see where some of these candidates have dropped out, where their votes are going to be redistributed. And at the moment, uh, Liz Trust seems to be underperforming quite a bit. But the expectation is that some of the the right wing candidates, um Abraham Kemi Badenoch, when they drop out, uh, and Zahari as well to an extent, the expectation is that uh, a sort of disproportionate amount of those will go to Liz Truss, and so we could have actually a very tight race at the top of the of the pile as as to who, which candidate, which two candidates, go through to the go through to the membership. Um, although it is worth saying that when that does happen, Penny Morden if penny morden is in that top two then she has looks like she's got a very good chance of of winning this at least if we can trust the the guys polling that we saw today
0: yeah so just so we make that clear then the polling at the moment is only amongst mps but mps will vote the the voting will continue until there are just two candidates and then Mm -hmm. those two candidates will go to the conservative party membership in the country is that right
1: yes that's right so and today, there was a threshold. They had to get at least 30 votes of MPs. Um, and two of those, Jeremy Hunt and Nadim Sahari, didn't reach that threshold so they are out. From now on in, it's, there's going to be a series of votes. There's going to be one tomorrow. And it will keep on going. And each time there's a vote, the, bottom, uh, the, the candidate with the fewest votes of the remaining six uh, will drop out. Um, what, what tends to happen, however, is that candidates decide... Um, even without being forced out that they decided they just simply haven't got enough for, and, and so poss- probably tomorrow night we'll, we'll see more than one candidate dropping out at least if if previous elections are, are any guide. Um, uh, interestingly, Johnson today at Prime Minister's questions seems to suggest that the whole thing might be over by Monday and it could be just down to, to one candidate. I think that's that's probably unlikely and actually talking to supporters of of some of the lesser candidates they seem fairly determined to, to sort of carry on until the end. Uh, Tom Tugendhat's supporters today suggesting that they're really keen to get to the televised debates, uh, some of which are going to be happening this weekend. They believe that um, the polling and, and focus groups that that follow those those televised debates will be good good for their candidate. But it's worth saying that a lot of the people, um, people's knowledge of, of some of these candidates is very minor. There was a poll out today suggesting that just 5% of the, the public Know a great deal about either Tom Tugendhat, Suella, or Suella Braverman, and some six percent of people say that I had a great deal of knowledge about an MP um, who doesn't even exist. So it's 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 these, these. Although people in Westminster may know who who these names are, aside from. Rishi Sunak and, to a lesser extent, Liz Truss. These are pretty unknown to the vast majority of people in the country.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it is this Conservative Party membership then who will decide they are the key electorate, and deep. they will decide for the nation, who should be our Prime Minister? I mean, there are questions there about democratic legitimacy, I suppose, but this may account for some of the tone of the campaigning as well, and I know that you've had real concerns about that.
2: Yes, I mean, I think this is now the third time that the electorate is essentially uh, Conservative Party members in the country who are going to effectively select, select a new Prime Minister. But yeah, it, it is an interesting one in terms of who... The audience actually is in terms of these leadership campaigns. You know, is it the public at large? Is it other MPs within the party? Is it the members? I suspect it's, you know, a mixture of all of these. But it has been striking, I think, that. Yeah, today we've got Rishi Sunak and Penny Morden emerging as the two front runners, and in my eyes, neither of them really represent a big break from the Boris Johnson era. Insofar as Rishi Sunak was Johnson's chancellor, and you know, sat through all of the numerous scandals, uh, and you know, yes, has put forward sort of a slightly different policy agenda in terms of not immediately uh, cutting taxes, uh, you know, a bit, a bit more meat on the bones in terms of the cost of living, et cetera. But he's very much still seen as part of the Johnson era. And Penny Morden, as Adam said, maybe don't really know all that much about her. But the day started with her being asked about uh, the EU referendum and the claims that Turkey was going to join the EU. And she was sort of defending that concept. And later on in her leadership, um, her sort of um, speech announcing her leadership campaign, she was, you know, she made a point to talk about the trans issue etc so it is really interesting to see that neither of these candidates really represent uh the, the sort of one nation conservatism that you know candidates such as hunt and arguably tungup do represent uh, and therefore it seems as if the johnson legacy will outlast the man uh, it seems like the party for most of the candidates have put themselves forward is you know, lurching more to the right. And there's a notion that Boris Johnson wasn't uh, sufficiently conservative enough in his instincts. And if he had been, that would have been a better idea. So it's interesting because suddenly people, you know, the relief of Johnson going has quickly started some discussion about whether his successor will uh, not only be in a similar vein, but also go go further in some ways. In it, not only in terms of policy, but also perhaps in terms of continuing some of the the cultural wars we've seen, which I think have disproportionately ha- had a disproportionate amount of coverage, c- considering they're not priorities for the public at all. And yet there are lots of sound bites from these numerous candidates about the trans issue, the BBC like license fee, free speech in universities. And yet the public polling shows in our own Byline Times polling has shown this week that for conservative voters, it's the economy, the cost of living crisis, the NHS, that. Is what matters to them. So, again, whether there is an immediate going to be an immediate uh, raft of solutions to the many problems that Britain faces, even with a new prime minister who's not Johnson, who doesn't come with all the chaos that he did, uh, you know, it's, it's all it's very questionable.
0: Uh, Penny Morden, I think, is quite interesting in a way. As you say, she has spoken out previously on the trans issue and identified herself as a trans ally, which not many people on the right of the Conservative Party would have done in such an outspoken way. She's referenced Margaret Thatcher. However, she has also talked, hasn't she, about being less the leader that it's more about the ship. I think she talked, didn't she, about a a kind of a a servant leader. I think that was the phrase, the idea that you would be consensual, that you would listen more. It strikes a different tone, I think, to Boris Johnson.
2: I think that's a fair point. And I think Rishi Sunak strikes a different tone as well. I think both of them seem less chaotic. They seem, on the face of it, more competent. But... it's but that's the point isn't it is it about the tone it it was was the problem with johnson ultimately uh about the the package that was presented to the public in the end i.e. was the main problem that there was scandal after scandal he kept lying uh you know people could see that there was sort of almost cover up after cover up uh and a lack of anything being done about the cost of living crisis so but was was that the main reason was it just the fact that he seemed and, Seemed very problematic on the surface, or was this something slightly deeper? And I think both with Rishi Sunak and Penny Morden, of course, the package would be much more palatable, I think, to not only just Conservative members but to the public at large. But I, I'm not so sh- I'm not yet convinced that there would be radical policy departures from the Johnson era. Uh, I think it remains to be seen. I mean, each of these people will have their own personalities. But I think that's the big question, you know, what was the actual problem with Johnson? Was it just the presentation or did it go deeper than that? And what is the problem that therefore the Conservative Party are trying to fix? And if it's just about optics, then they'll do very well with either Rishi Sunak or Penny than I think, because they're not Johnson. But if it's actually a deeper problem about where conservatism actually goes and what it represents and what it should, then I think it's a bit more complicated.
0: Yeah, I'm looking at some of the names like Liz Truss, like Suella Braverman, Kemi Badenoch. I mean, they all seem to me that trio to represent uh, a Johnson continuity government in many respects. You know, they are right wing conservatives, Uh, perhaps unlike Johnson as well. They would be stricter on public spending. Johnson kind of taught the talk, didn't he, uh, about Mm. being a conservative, but was also... His political antennae were attuned to the fact that people wanted help during the time of COVID. And, you know, he was keen to encourage Rishi Sunak to go down that route. So he wasn't as fiscally conservative as Sunak himself would have liked to have been. But that trio of candidates and perhaps Sunak himself represent a degree of continuity in terms of policy with Johnson, with maybe Penny Mordaugh. Suggesting she may be a little bit different. Tom Tugendhat, as you say, perhaps being the only, the only bearer of the the one nation conservative torch.
1: I mean, I think I think it's it, looking at this list of candidates. Nominally speaking, they all have represent different wings of the party, as you say. Tom Tugendhat is trying to represent the one nation conservatives, and also Penny Morton, to an extent uh, as a one nation, although a sort of Brexit supporting. Uh, one nation and there's people there's candidates on the right but actually if you look at what they've been talking about over the last week or so there's a real unanimity and you're right to say that penny Morden in the past has said some supportive things about trans rights and and there's been know, there's been a massive backtracking actually in the last uh, few days and she was asked about this this morning and she Made some crude comments about Margaret Thatcher and well, Margaret Thatcher having a William, and she doesn't have a William and all, all this, you know. It, the, so there is this sense actually among Conservative candidates that there, there, there isn't really a willingness to to have a massive divergence from the from the Johnson era at all. And as far as the culture war is concerned, if you there's been some interesting polling of Conservative Party members. Conservative Party members are actually relatively close to the public in that they, they, they think that the party should be talking about cost of living. They don't think they should be talking about culture wars. But as far as the Conservative MPs and Conservative candidates, they seem to be on a completely different page and are still sort of stuck in this, this Johnson era. They haven't really caught up with what the public are actually interested in. I wonder how much this is to do with, is their audience really Conservative Party members or is their audience potentially the Conservative supporting press? Um, papers like the Daily Mail who've who've gone very heavy on on some of these culture war issues. Is that really the audience they're pitching to rather than sort of the the grassroots themselves?
0: Yeah. You've posed the question in a Byline Times article, which people can read at bylinetimes.com, Adam, about the the race for tax cuts. Some of the candidates are battling to outdo each other in the Mm. promise of tax cuts. But at a time of a, a barely growing economy that can only be at the cost to public services which seems not to be a concern to any of the candidates i've not heard it articulated by any one of them
1: well yes i mean you talk to a sort of average person on the street what they're concerned about is number one the cost of living but also the deterioration in public services that we've seen in recent years um And this just isn't, those are two issues that just aren't being tackled by the candidates. Part of it is to do with sort of how removed some of these people are from sort of the the grassroots. Um, But generally speaking, Conservative MPs are economically much more conservative than the the rest of the party. The polling shows that. Um, And they they are much more interested in the the idea of tax cuts. But tax cuts, and they're comparing themselves to Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher was not in favour of tax cuts without paying for them. Um, and I think that's, that's one differentiation that we have seen in this race is Rishi Sunak has tried to suggest that he's not in, as in favour of tax cuts that can't be paid for as some of the, the other candidates. Um, but it does seem to be a sort of lightning rod issue for, for Conservative MPs for, for whatever reason.
0: Yeah. And um, Hardeep, we've talked about the cost of living crisis a little bit. We haven't mentioned and I've not heard mentioned, arguably, the crisis of our time, which is climate change. I'm not aware of the stance of any of the candidates
2: on this. Mm, Again, it's uh, absolutely right. It's just been sidelined, which... Again, not to tar the candidates with the brush of the prime minister that they've had for the past three years. But, you know, in that sense, there's always been a gap between the rhetoric and the reality when it comes to the Conservative Party and its climate commitments. So, you know, we've heard a lot about what can be done, but on the ground, uh, you know, big fossil fuel companies are still being, uh, well, they're not being disincentivized, uh to, you know, change tack. And there there just isn't a vision uh, for the climate emergency. It doesn't seem to be a priority uh, for the Conservatives. And, you know, if anything, they're giving the go ahead for new fossil fuel projects to go ahead. So, I mean, again, the climate emergency, I would say, I mean, not, Not solely, but it is something that younger younger voters uh, really care about in the country at large. I think, but again, that isn't really broadly. They're not really broadly representative of the constituency. I would say of the you know Conservative Party members, uh, which these leadership candidates are having to to talk to in this contest at the moment. So we may well hear more about it, but it's interesting because alongside the climate emergency, there hasn't been much on the pandemic. That is also also as if we've just... That's ended now. There hasn't been any uh, talk about what would happen if new variants emerged or long COVID or anything like that. We've just sort of moved on, and of course Brexit is is not really mentioned because it was done by by the current prime minister, and so any of the economic reality, the fallout of that, isn't isn't being discussed at all, and indeed I don't think will be. You know, the the. the, the Dots aren't being connected between these various factors, such as the impact of the pandemic, such as the impact of the very hard Brexit that we ended up with, and the cost of living crisis and the war in Ukraine. So, again, for me, it's, there's been a lot of sound bites which are great for the the sort of the right wing newspapers, the tabloids. There's been a lot of coverage about the ins and outs internal party politics of the conservatives debriefs against different groups and and that sort of thing but i i don't think we've got sufficient context or sort of uh, rigor in terms of what these candidates potentially would actually do if they were in power i think perhaps that's to come but i also think it's a function of The sort of the media system that we have and the fact that a lot of political discourse, uh, whether we like it or not, and we don't like it, is set by, you know, the people in the in this very small circle that comprise the very influential right wing newspapers um, and the people who own them in conjunction with uh, influential politicians in the Conservative Party so whether what's what's going on behind closed doors and what conversations are being had about what issues should be prioritized and who they should be appealing to at this stage uh, it, it's very interesting and I think we're, we're probably just getting a very small uh, snippet of those conversations that are going on.
0: Yeah I mean there are uh, going to be some public debates over the coming weeks aren't there? I Yeah. Guy ITV, Channel Four, and presumably eventually the BBC will clamber on board as well. But and, and we may get some of those issues unpacked. Go on, Adam, you wanted to join. Yeah, us? I
1: mean, I, it just seems. I mean, covering this this race, it does seem sometimes like we're sort of it's it's operating in a almost parallel universe. I mean, we've got these these sort of record temperatures going on at the moment. We've got this climate crisis. We've got cost of living crisis. Um, Brexit isn't working. None of none of these issues are. Are sort of coming to the surface at all, and it wasn't that long ago that we had the COP26 in Glasgow, and, and we were told about these these big pledges. The Prime Minister was all behind it, but yet this week, um, Patrick valance held a briefing for um, MPs in Parliament, and not a single uh, candidate in this race actually bothered even to attend it. Um, so, and instead, what we've been hearing about this week is you know debates about gender-neutral toilets. There's been comments about you know Ben and Jerry and whether they're woke, and none of these issues really sort of touch the surface of what the vast majority of the people in the country are actually concerned about. But but for some reason, these are the issues that are sort of dominating the debate within the the top reaches of the Conservative Party.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking, hard deep, we've got a nation where energy bills are estimated to be rising to beyond three thousand pounds a year for the average family Mm. quid a week just for basic heating and lighting a massive increase at a time where we've got double digit inflation and these debates about whether we should be cutting taxes just just feels like kind of 1980s debate to me really and uh, a debate I suspect we wouldn't be having if Johnson was still there. But now this is the opportunity. It, it's red meat, isn't it, for the for the conservative-leaning tabloids and I guess for the grassroots Conservative Party in this country. But well, it's so far from where where people's everyday needs and concerns arguably are.
2: Mm, And that's the ultimate reality that whoever comes into power after Boris Johnson will be faced with, and I think then there will be a general election, uh, not, not that long down the road, and the public will decide you know and I think Johnson got away with so much partly because of the chaos around his administration but also he wasn't known to be a solutions man he was a slogans man and so his one sort of achievement is I I got Brexit done. I think with the candidates who are coming afterwards their, their whole sort of way of presenting themselves is that they are more competent, uh, they will bring less chaos, more integrity, and provide solutions to some of these big problems. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see whether anything is delivered by the person who becomes prime minister next, and ultimately it will be the public who have has its say, because there will be a general election on that. But I think, as Adam was saying, it's so interesting that it's It's like it is like a parallel world. And for me, it just reinforces even more, you know, and to an extent, we it could be argued we're part of the sort of Westminster political media bubble, you know, journalists who are really into these issues and know a lot about politics. and and I think that is, that is still far removed from what's going on day to day in people's lives. And at the moment, it just feels like this contest is a complete sort of Westminster bubble contest. But I do think that the televised debates may be interesting because whereas the newspapers always posit themselves as this channel between politics and the public, uh, you know, I actually, you know, we know that they actually are big power blocking themselves and often are influencing public discourse and political discourse, when it comes to the broadcast journalism uh, and these leadership debates, in a way, you get a more sort of deeper and rigorous, the public will get a deeper and rigorous look at these candidates. You know, they'll actually be able to see them, what they say, how they react to questions. And just in the last week, it's been really telling when we've seen Rishi Sunak interviewed, for example, by Beth Rigby of Sky News, she was asking him about some of his economic affairs, the non-dom status of his wife, having a green card, uh, issues that he says are now in the past and have been looked at and properly accounted for. But he didn't, you know, you physically see, he, he didn't, you know, he didn't really know how to react. And so I think that a lot of the race at the moment is being mediated through the media and sound bites in the Westminster bubble but the in the leadership debates which I wasn't a massive fan on fan when we started adopting them uh, in in sort of Britain which is a really recent phenomenon here I do think they might be revealing uh, to, to the public and it's ultimately whoever gets in will be the public who will have to decide to keep them in or not because I, I don't think that the Tories could go for too long without a general election now.
0: Yeah. Adam, forgive me. I will come back to you in just a moment. I just want to ask uh, Hardeep, though, about one uh, really interesting issue, I think, certainly for me and Hardeep anyway, which is we, we talk a lot on the Byline Times podcast and in the Byline Times about the structural racism and the structural inequality of British society, which is there for all to see If only they would look, albeit that you and I, Hardy, would no doubt be accused of being woke for breaking the issue and cultural Marxists or whatever mud people would choose to throw at us. But it is striking, we're not the first people to notice this, the diversity of the candidates, given that we are talking about a Conservative Party generally characterised as being a right-wing brand of the Conservative Mm -hmm. Party, is remarkably
2: diverse. It is. And in terms of the candidates for the left, it's, it's, you know, very likely that the next prime minister could be a person of colour. And I, there has been a lot of discussion around how interesting that is, that actually the first person of colour to be prime minister would come from the right as opposed to the left. I, I've had my journey. Uh, looking at this issue, I think. Um, Obviously, my own background is, you know, I'm Indian. My parents are from Kenya, India. I was born and brought up here. And I've always been fascinated about these questions about identity, I think the discussion is, is perhaps a bit too simplistic when the issue is quite nuanced. I do think it's a sign uh, it's, a, it's a great sign that we have people of colour uh, occupying the highest offices uh, of state. I also think another thing that's true is that there is structural racism in this country. I also think it's true that the Conservative Party, through its policies or its inaction, uh, has not sufficiently taken that issue seriously. So, all of these things are true. But this is where it gets a bit more complicated. And I think it was the year before last, Priti Patel, she was accused by Labour MPs of gaslighting the country. Because as we all know, she's the Home Secretary, she has a very hardline approach to issues of asylum in particular, issues of asylum in particular. And you know, people think that with her background, she's the granddaughter of Ugandan refugees, she, you know, they feel perplexed as to why she's doing that. She stood up in Parliament and said, I won't be taking any, I I know what racism is because I faced it, I won't be taking any lessons from those who expect me to be a certain type of minority. And I disagree with Priti Patel in most of what she does as a politician. But that was very revealing because what she was saying was, I'm an individual. I'm an individual. And if I want to choose to be hardline and have Ugandan uh, Ugandan refugees who are my grandparents, then both. both both things can be true. I think the prop, so I think, you know, people of color can be individuals with all sorts of views, some of which uh, might disadvantage other people uh, of, of the same race and the same gender. You know, I, I think that that can be absolutely true. What I find problematic is when those same individuals are pointed to as being representative of the country and, its, uh, and racism in this country as a whole. So often during Johnson's time, Johnson's time as as leader, any any question about Islamophobia in his party, any question about racism, the structural causes of it, all he does is point to, all he has done is point to the front bench and say, well, I've got the most diverse cabinet so there's no issues. All we have is progress, which I think is disingenuous because if Patel and Rishi Sunak and Kate not? all these people are individual people just because they're people of colour doesn't mean they have to be a certain way, have a certain ideology or not harbour things that other people might perceive as racist against other people. But to say that they are then representative, that's not true. They're individuals. And I think that's the point. You know, all, In a way, them being in the cabinet is a sign of progress for those individuals. It does not mean or negate uh, the fact that we have problems of structural racism. And I think there's lots of other discussions we could have about colonial dynamics and and some sort of history and divide and rule, which I think is kind of interesting. But I think my journey with this issue has been it's um, unless you've met people and know what their motivations are. It's very hard to speculate as to why they might be a certain way. But um, I think they're individuals and therefore not representative and therefore, we need to confront that there is structural racism and accept that it's a good thing that these people who happen to be people of colour uh, have reached the sort of the heights that they have in politics. Bo- both are true.
1: I mean, can I just come, on that, come in on that? I, mean, I think objectively, it's a, it's a good thing that the Conservative Party has become a lot more representative in terms of race um you know i don't think that many people would argue against that i think the labor party has got a lo- long way to go to to match, match up to that but when you look at the the people who have been the people of color who have been put into these positions of authority Priti patel and and at these conservative leadership candidates kemi Badenoch, Suella, Breverman, uh these are people who argue against the existence of structural racism um, and that was almost a, a condition of, 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 of getting to a senior position in the Conservative Party. And those, those people of colour who have argued differently um, have often been sidelined uh, within the Conservative Party, particularly over the, the issue of um, Islamophobia in the Conservative Party. Um, and also a lot of the, the sort of increased representation of people of colour in the party is a legacy of David Cameron, uh, most of these MPs who we're talking about became MPs during the the Cameron era, and Johnson has has very much taken a step away from that. Um, and I think, were it not for Cameron, we wouldn't be seeing this representation where we are. And I don't think it's a a legacy that that Johnson has been particularly keen on continuing. Of course, it you know it may change if we have a. Depending on who the next leader is, if Rishi Sunak, for instance, perhaps he the, the path that that might open a lot more people into the politics than, than before, um, but it remains to be seen. Uh,
0: at this relatively early stage, Adam, uh, who do you think might win? Can I put you to the spot? I'll put you on the spot for that.
1: <laughs> well, I think um, you know, talking to Conservative MPs at the turn of the year, the expectation was that Rishi Sunak would walk away with this. Um, I think that's very much not the case now. And if you look at that, that polling today, Yuga polling, uh, he's very much underperforming among party members. I think it all depends on who the final two candidates are. If, if because there, there is there are some dark arts going on here. There are some votes being lent this way and that way. Um, if it's a straight race um, between Sunak. And Morden, I think Morden's got a very good chance. And I think generally, I think there is a, there does seem to be a sort of a possibly a majority in the membership anti-Sunak. Um, but I think there's a good chance that Morden won't make it into the final round. And a lot of these right right wing candidates, um, their votes will be redistributed to Liz Truss. I think, I think there's a good chance that Liz Truss will have a late surge and, and make it into this into that round. In which case. It's not quite as simple a choice between Truss and and uh, Sunak. Um, but it's just an incredibly open field at the moment. And I think until we know who those top two candidates are, it's incredibly hard to predict.
0: It's such a strange situation, isn't it? Uh, I think when Johnson was claiming that he had a mandate to be Prime Minister. I personally railed against that on one of these podcasts and said, well, no, Johnson does not have a mandate because we live in a parliamentary democracy in which you elect your local MP. And if they are members of a party, that party then elects its leader, who will then become the Prime Minister. So that's the system we have. So it does mean that you know, we have precedent, don't we, for for members of a party electing our prime minister. But it, it, there is still something that feels odd about that. Yeah, I think. I mean, twenty twenty. But sorry, I was going to say. But then, you know, you're building this other layer in or that, you know, the, the system builds in another layer whereby candidates might conspire or their supporters might conspire to frustrate the will of the Conservative Party membership by excluding mm. Penny Mordaunt from the final vote, so it may well be that if today we had a vote amongst the Conservative Party membership, Penny Mordaunt would win and would become Prime Minister. But that electorate wow. is being denied perhaps the opportunity to choose her.
1: <laughs> well, we, we've seen what we've seen a sort of parallel with this. What happened in the Labour Party when, uh, in uh, when Jeremy Corbyn was elected there was a demand from the membership to get him on the ballot. And um, a few, several, or quite a few Labour MPs agreed as a sort of gesture of goodwill to the membership to get him on the ballot. And then he went on to win it. Um, and talking to those, I was talking to one Conservative MP today who said, look, we want to have as, as wide open a field as possible, but what we don't want is to end up with our equivalent of Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister. Um, and so there is some concern among conservative MPs that they don't want to leave it entirely to the membership. They want to get this right in terms, in the, from their perspective, of, of narrowing it down to the right two candidates. But the party is just so divided and it's such a sort of toxic atmosphere in this campaign. So much poison coming from left and right. And the party is so inward looking, as we've seen from the sort of issues that they're discussing. There isn't really any agreement among them as to who those top two candidates are could be. So it's incredibly unpredictable. And I, I think we could end up with with somebody like Penny Morgan who, you know, whatever you, you may think of her sort of qualities, is incredibly unknown among the public. There's a poll out today suggesting that um, 11% of, only 11% of the public even know who she is. And and as we know from these pollings, probably half of those uh, aren't telling the truth. So she's, you know, <laughs> Almost nobody knows who she is, and she could end up being prime minister within, within two months, which is crazy. And I think you're right that you know, this idea that Johnson had a mandate of 15 million or 14 million, whatever, whatever it was, isn't true. I do think – and we do have a parliamentary system where parties choose a leader and the leader becomes prime minister. I do think there possibly is a limit to people's patience with how many times because <laughs> we can have the governing party change leader before people get fed up. Um, you know which is such a sort of huge range of of leaders over over the last decade um our public just going to say look you know that they, they 've put in somebody else now, somebody we 've never heard of um suddenly our prime minister um so i, I don 't know how well that 's going to go down with the public, although you know if it is morden, she is fairly impressive you know she she had a launch today and and she she 's a good speaker and um i think there is something about her that will convince a lot of sort of english conservative voters sort of she does have that kind of home counties um quite authoritative vibe about her um so who knows the public may warm to her they may warm to rishi sunak um even if conservative party members haven't warmed to him so so i don't think it's the next election is a sort of foregone conclusion um but it you know the, the the way we're looking at this this campaign at the moment the party doesn't seem in in the greatest shape. And I think whoever does win is going to inherit a lot of problems uh, internally in the party. And there's a lot of poison that would need to be drained by them. And I'm not convinced that they're going to be able to, whoever wins is going to be able to do that.
0: We'll certainly be keeping across it here on Byline Radio and via the Byline Times podcast. And of course, in the Byline Times newspaper and on the Byline Times website, bylinetimes.com. Thank you, Hard (laughs) Deep. Great to speak to you. You've got to go away and get the uh, latest Byline Times newspaper ready for publication, haven't you?
2: Yes, Adrian, it has been Gosh, what a week to be on deadline! So obviously, we have a monthly print edition newspaper, which we always start about uh, eight days before the deadline, which is midday tomorrow. It gets sent to the printers, and uh, yeah, gosh, I had to just down tools in the middle of last week because it was clear that everything was going to keep changing. So it has been one of those weeks, but I feel, I don't know, putting the paper together, I feel. I feel really proud of our team on Barline Times. I think we did a lot to bring to light a lot of the structural failings uh, that the Boris Johnson administration exposed. And it just made me reflect what an extraordinary period it has been in British political life and uh, a really extraordinary time to be a journalist. So it's, it, I, I can't quite believe it's all a whirlwind that. It's all happened within the space of two or three years. But yes, I'm going to go and put the final touches onto that paper, which hits the presses tomorrow midday. People will still be able to buy it, even if they haven't subscribed yet. Just uh, they head over to our website. There's lots of options there as to how they can get it through their front door or in their inboxes. We've got lots of exclusive analysis and content from the likes of Adam and uh, other members of our team. And also some yeah, freelance writers as well. So, yeah, do grab a copy if you like what you hear.
0: And the uh, yeah, the bonus is that if you take out a subscription to the Byline Times, not only do you keep Hardeep in a job, not only do you keep Adam in a job, you keep me in work. Well. Mm. So it's a bonus all round But um, <laughs> keep us in the uh, lavish lifestyle to which we've become accustomed. Mm asterisk that's a joke but anyway uh it's it's great and it's a privilege to be involved with such a great team and with such a great product as well so uh, do subscribe if you can check out the details at byline thank you Hardeep. thank, thank you, you adam and we'll thank see you again very soon thank you for listening to the byline times podcast if you're listening on catch up or to byline radio i'm adrian goldberg i'll see you again very soon thanks for listening now bye bye